this morning as we turn to the book of Exodus. As Greg mentioned, we're beginning a new series in the second book of our Bible. Um, So if you would go ahead and turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere nearby to you in one of the seat backs in front of you. And you'll be helped to know that you'll find the book of Exodus on page 42. Let's read and hear God's word together. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all of their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the, the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked walked beside the river. 
She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Would you pray with me? Let's ask that God would be faithful to his promise, that he would help us to hear and receive his word. Father, we ask and we pray that you would help us this morning. Because you've told us that your word is precious, that it's more precious than the most valuable element that we could ever unearth that it's sweeter than honey to the taste, that it's profitable for our lives. And Lord, at the same time, while we know these things are true, we confess that we are slow to believe. We also confess that there are many things that compete within our lives and within our loves that would tell us otherwise and tempt us in other directions to believe that there is someone or something more valuable, that there is something more pleasurable or sweeter. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us by your own spirit to see what is true and to receive your word as it is. Lord, we pray that you would be faithful to your promise this morning, that you would help us to know and to believe, to taste and to see that you are good, that you do good, and that your word is worthy of it being our delight. So, Father, show us this morning the goodness of your provision, the kindness of your providence, your ability to sustain your people in all seasons, and most importantly and most clearly, Lord, show us Jesus, that we might see how all of your promises in him are yes and amen. Help us to see him as the one who is the sure confidence for everything that your word proclaims to us, the grounds of our assurance, the very means by which we would lift our voices in song, why we would even consider approaching your throne in prayer, and why we might with great expectancy and anticipation have your word before us. Lord, be faithful to us, we pray, on the behalf of Christ, who is our Savior, who is your Son that you've given, we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Exodus most certainly is a masterpiece. It has all the elements of every good story that are rarely forgotten and that we love to retell and to remember. Because within this story, as within every really good masterpiece, there are these elements of good versus evil. Uh, victory and defeat, there's tinges of irony, sarcasm, mystery, there's death, and there's even new life. And much like a classic piece of music, there's tension and then resolution in this book. There's 
even melody and harmony. If you read it in a sitting, you'll find that there's rhythm and meter to it and that all of this is woven together to create this work of beauty. But Exodus is not just a standalone story. It's not just a musical single that sits in isolation from everything else. It is, of course, a part of four other books, uh, the books of Moses or the Pentateuch. And we are reminded of this, even in just reading the first few verses, that the very same family that concerned the end of Genesis is carried over in the opening verses of Exodus. But Exodus is not only important to the immediate context of understanding Genesis and why you should read Leviticus and why Deuteronomy is contextually very important. This book, Exodus, has an even broader reach to a further context. Because just like the images and uh, pictures of a particular story can be used to foreshadow some uh, future event that you know as you're reading, like this is important, this is going to come up later, so too with Exodus. As you read through God's Word and you see some of the themes and the images and some of the even the lines and the phrases, your ear is tipped off if you're familiar with God's word, and you say, this is important, because this most certainly comes up later. And just as a composer will put together just a few notes of melody and and one part only to bring them out in, in fuller dynamic later in the piece, the book of Exodus is the same way, that God has composed his word and in such a way that there's these certain lines of melody that appear here, and then if you have an ear to hear the scriptures, you find them come out in this much broader melody later in God's word. The images, the themes, the purpose of the book of Exodus is so central to all of scripture, to understanding the gospel, and to making sense of your life. It models the salvation story that's found in the whole Bible as God redeems the Israelites from the grip of evil. He ransoms them them by his power, even through death, and that he cleanses them from the defilement of sin, and then he consecrates them for holy living so that they might actually dwell with him. You already hear these themes, don't you? All these images that sound so familiar to us as God's people. And if you are familiar with the book, just consider in more detail for a moment just some of the broad movements of this narrative. It opens with a slave people building cities for Pharaoh. And it ends with the same people liberated to serve God, building a tabernacle for him. It tells of this Lamb of God. And it relates how these people took refuge under the blood of that lamb. But it says how these same people then turned to worship a golden calf. It's a book where God graciously redeems his people. He's going to reveal himself by his own word. And he is going to then dwell with his people. All of these themes, all of these movements, which are revealed to us here, they come to fuller fruition and explanation throughout Scripture. And so, by God's design, and if this is truly God's design, to bring His people out of bondage and into His presence, we're meant to ask this question in this story. 
what must God overcome in order to accomplish this? Because as any good story, it doesn't just happen. There has to be some sense of conflict. There has to be some sense of opposition. And so what, in God's great design, is the opposition to his plan that he overcomes in order to tell the greatest story ever told? Well, if you keep reading in the book of Exodus, you find that one of the obstacles he must overcome is the evil plans of hard-hearted rulers. But it's not just the evil of Pharaoh. God has to overcome the unbelief of his people. He has to overcome rebellion. He has to overcome treason. And each of these obstacles, it really sets up one very important question. Will God's word endure? Or will his promises fall? That's really what's underneath everything that unfolds for us in the book of Exodus. And it stands really at this critical moment in redemptive history because God's already promised big things. Back in Genesis 3.15, he already told the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve that he would send a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent, and through this same son, he would restore God's creation. And then God made a promise to Abraham, really in the same vein, that Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And God went so far to say later in the book of Genesis that, Abraham, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars of the heavens. God has spoken. Can he be trusted? Will his words endure, or will they fall flat? As you read the book of Exodus, we also find that Pharaoh speaks. He has commands. Will his words endure? Will his words come to pass, or will they fall flat? So you can already see this pitting of words against one another, and who ultimately will win? Who ultimately will get the glory? Who ultimately will accomplish their plans and purposes? All of this is set up for us within the book of Exodus. And these are the very questions that not only set up this book, but open up the very pressing concerns for God's people today. Can you trust God in his word for you? Whatever your circumstances might be, can you trust him? So in the first few chapters of Exodus, we're meant to see and to hear that we can have faith in God's word, that God's word is stronger than man's, and God's word does not fail. Let's see how this opens up, first of all, as it's set in the context of faith in the midst of suffering and affliction. That's kind of scene one. Faith in the midst of suffering and affliction. Now look back, we just read this. The opening, really, 11 verses of chapter one remind us of God's unfolding plan and his faithful provision for the sons of Jacob. They entered Egypt under a famine as a small clan of 70 people. But under Joseph, and as we're told here, under God's kindness, they flourished, they grew, they multiplied. And even when the founding generation dies off, they continued to grow 
and multiply and become even stronger. But all of this favor that they had had in the land of Goshen where they settled, it changes when a new, a new king takes charge. And we're told there was a king who did not know Joseph. In years past, Joseph was really the second in command to Pharaoh. It was under Joseph's leadership that not only all of Egypt, but the surrounding region was saved in the midst of famine because of God's gracious revelation to Joseph and seven years of, of abundance and seven years of famine. And so they stored up in the abundance and Pharaoh put Joseph as second in command and said, do it. But this new king had no personal knowledge of Joseph. He had no connection to these Hebrew people that were just given the, 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 the right to live in the land of Goshen. So this new king surveys his kingdom. He takes inventory and he sees a problem. He sees the sons of Israel could be a threat to the stability of his kingdom. They are so many in number that he is a wise man and knows that if any other nation shows up, they could easily say, join us, we'll overtake Egypt. And this king realizes these people are a threat. In short, the blessing that God brought to them through their multiplication and through their fruitfulness was a liability in the eyes of this Pharaoh. And so what's the solution? Well, look back, verse 11. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. In verse 12, the people of Israel were oppressed. Verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people, work, people of Israel work as slaves. Keep going, verse 14. They made their lives bitter with hard service. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So all of this is really setting up a point of tension and a point of conflict because God has said that he would cause the descendants of Abraham to be more numerous than the stars of heaven. But Pharaoh has said these people are too many and they must be suppressed. Whose word will stand? Whose command will endure? Even though Israel has fallen from favor to affliction, what are we to make with this? And where is God amidst all of this affliction? Because they are unknown to Pharaoh, and it appears that they are forgotten by God. Now, certainly this experience of bitter affliction and feeling even forgotten by God, it's a repeated concern of the saints of God throughout history. The language of the Psalter is filled with this very same language, the sort of lament that recalls years of God's favor, and it weeps over present suffering. Psalm 42.9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Psalm 77.9, has God forgotten to be gracious? I know he's gracious. Maybe he's forgotten to be so to me. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Has God forgotten? Where is he? And maybe you've asked God the very same thing in very similar words. And God in his wisdom has placed this exact melody line within the book of Exodus for all his people to see 
and to consider, are you watching? Are you listening to what's being said right here in God's word concerning faith in the midst of suffering and affliction? Can you trust God in the midst of suffering? Can you trust God in the midst of affliction? Well, what about faith in the midst of evil and ungodliness? Because the the story doesn't let up there and resolve. It still presses further, doesn't it? What about trusting God in the midst of evil and ungodliness? Well, as you read through this, clearly any attempts at population control are not working because the more they are oppressed, verse 11, the more they multiply. And so this sets up the next phase of Pharaoh's plan. Notice this section again. We're going to read it here. It's set off again by the king of Egypt speaking. He gives a command, as we're going to see in verse 17, to the midwives to murder any boys born to Hebrew women. And so we're meant to hear that. We're meant to read and consider whose voice will endure, whose commands will come to pass. Let's consider first the command to the midwives. Look at it again in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, and when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. What's the plan, Pharaoh? The plan is selective infanticide, the murder of Hebrew sons, so that over time, fewer and fewer men will be around to marry, to further the population. And the remaining Hebrew daughters, they will be assimilated into Egyptian culture as they marry Egyptian sons, and they raise Egyptian boys and Egyptian daughters, and over time, the sons of Jacob will be no more. It's a patient plan, but it's actually a very effective plan and has been done throughout history. Now, the concern here, as tragic as it is, is not simply the murder of innocent Hebrew boys, but the threat to the existence of God's covenant people. If boys are wiped out and Hebrew daughters are integrated into the Egyptian life by marriage, what becomes of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15? That from your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. If the seed of Abraham disappears, the promise of God has failed. And ultimately, what's on the line here in Exodus 1 is the faithfulness of God. That's what matters. 
Will the promise of God endure in the face of the evil plots of men? That is the question that's being presented. But what Pharaoh didn't account for in this plan is a few midwives that fear God. Whether the midwives uh, took the long way on their maps app to get there, or whether they conveniently stepped out of the room at the point of labor, they drew the line in the sand. We fear God. We will not murder babies. They were really of the same mind of Peter and John thousands of years later as these men stood before religious authorities of Israel. Those religious authorities in Israel said in Acts chapter 4, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them, it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And history has been marked out by similar men and similar women who feared God and not men, who chose to obey God rather than men and stood for righteousness. Some died as martyrs. Others lived as movement leaders. But really, regardless of the immediate outcome, the conviction in both categories remained the same. We fear God. Therefore, friends, this is yet just another reminder that we, as God's people, we need to be so clear on navigating the distinctions between legality and morality. Do you know what I mean? Just because it's legal, it does not mean it's moral. And just because it's illegal, it does not mean it's immoral. We need to be clear that those categories exist. And the line that marks out our path forward between such decisions, it's found in the scriptures. What God has said determines how we will live. What God has spoken overrules what man has spoken. And the challenge, I believe, for God's people living in an ungodly world is that we need to be clear on the categories that God has established, not our preferences, not even our political opinions, not even the place that we live and what's acceptable in our immediate context. But God's people need to be clear as we live in an ungodly world that the categories of which God has established and be willing to not do as the authority would command when those commands violate the voice of God. Christian, do not be surprised 
when you find that your submission to God's law places you in opposition to man's favor. We know that, but do we know that? Perhaps everybody in your team at work frequently pads their expense report as they claim more than they actually spent. Because you're owed that. They're going to spend it on something else anyways. Look how much top-line revenue was out last year. Come on. Will you? Doctors and nurses are increasingly put in compromising conditions that require them to uphold cultural values and sexual ethics that reject God's good design. Are you clear on what those categories are? Are you clear as to what God has spoken? Students, many of you are returning or have returned to school. Are you clear on the lines between what is cheating and what is honesty? Between what is diligence and what is laziness? And are you remembering that sometimes what is normative for your student body might actually be in opposition to what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And just like these midwives, God's people have most faithfully navigated situations just like that in an ungodly world when they say, we fear God. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 29, 29. The fear of the man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. But did you notice the summary statement there before we move on in verse 20? Not only did the midwives bring, uh, receive God's favor, and what they did, did it bring God's favor, the people of Israel also grew strong and Multiplied. This is the second time that we've heard of God's people growing stronger and multiplying under the weight of affliction and evil. Scripture does not repeat itself for no reason. Do you see this? Do you see what it is saying? And most often in narrative, we learn by what is shown, not always what is explicitly commanded. Don't read narrative like you would an epistle, where you expect to find logic and command and a reason. God communicates the same truth, but in narrative, it's often shown to us. And what is shown to us here is this repetition of God's people flourishing amidst adversity. God's people being fruitful and multiplying, even in the face of evil and injustice. Christian, do you know this? Do you know that it's possible to be fruitful amidst adversity. Seasons of pain and bitter affliction do not have to mean barrenness for the Christian. How often the opposite is true. How often, and maybe your own testimony bears this out, how often suffering produces the sweetest fruits of God's provision. 
Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said, Afflictions are the golden key by which the Lord opens the rich treasure of his word to people's souls. Do you see affliction as the golden key? Another contemporary, John Flavel, he thought much about suffering, God's people, and he experienced a fair bit of it himself. He referred to our suffering as the best work in the worst of times. He noted that it's not really the pain of affliction that does the greatest damage to God's people. He observed it's their unpreparedness for that affliction. And how many times could we say that bears true in our lives or the people that we observe? That God can often use affliction to bring about the sweetest fruits. But how often our unpreparedness for that affliction or wrong thinking amidst that affliction produces such damage. Blaine would go on to write, God takes no delight in afflicting his people, yet he sometimes exposes them to great and grievous sufferings. And if you read this work, Preparation for Suffering, the best of work and the worst of times, you'll find he goes on to list a number of reasons and examples as to how sweet fruit is born from severe affliction. He makes a great agrarian observation looking around at the many farmers and just the natural landscape in which he lived. And he said, adversity often kills those corruptions which prosperity bred. And what he said was, winter weather rots the rank weeds that spring up in the best soil. Anybody who has good soil, a little bit of water in a backyard knows what he's talking about. That this summer we had weeds Everywhere. As the sun hit that well-saturated soil, growth. But how often in just a few weeks, just a few months, will winter weather begin to rot, that which is just out of control? His observation is that seasons of prosperity often breed the sort of weeds in our lives that we do not need or want. And how good is God to bring winter seasons, seasons of adversity, that actually rot the weeds that the sort of good seasons will bring? We need that sort of affliction. That's a good preparation. He also noticed how adversity so well and so helpfully clears away the doubts and fears that can strangle our hearts. He said, one sharp trial wherein God helps us to be faithful will do more to satisfy our fears and resolve our doubts than all the sermons we ever heard. How many have found this to be true? That through one acute trial, that laser focus of of this is what matters and the doubts and the fears and all the things I was distracted with, that has taught me more than all the podcasts, all the commentaries, all the sermons, all the instruction I could ever receive, that God uses this to teach. By troubles or distress, we're awakened to our duties to be taught to pray more frequently, spiritually, and fervently where our prayers kind of meandered and became a bit routine, how often does trial and affliction focus those prayers to where they are 
heartfelt and desperate, oh God. What Flavel is saying and what the scriptures are teaching is that affliction serves God's good purposes. Seasons of affliction often bring the greatest fruitfulness. And so we'd be wise to pray in light of all of that. Father, help me to be faithful in the suffering that you see fit to bring to my life. Help me in your kindness to bring the good fruit from my adversity. Help me to trust you in the midst of this and to not murmur in the midst of this. Help me to speak of your kindness and not misrepresent you. How wise would we be to pray what we know of God and apply that to the very reality? Okay, so God is faithful still. But what about when Pharaoh's commands extend even further? Because it's not just a command to the midwives. As you keep reading, there's a command to the entire nation. Look back at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done of him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it, and when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Seeing that the midwives are not quite getting the job done, the command goes to all the people. As Pharaoh now deputizes all of Egypt to take any Hebrew boy and under his authority cast that baby into the Nile. It's at this point that the narrative It's kind of hovering above at 30,000 feet, just giving us the broad overview of things. It suddenly comes down to ground level. And what was being told with broad brush strokes is now told with the finer points of detail as we're given particular names and people. A Levite man takes a Levite woman as a wife. She conceives and they bear a son. 
Their attempts to hide him for a few months work, but then it becomes too difficult. And so the plan moves to hide him in a basket and place him among the reeds there in the river. And even though God is not mentioned by direct name in this section, his hand is clearly shaping this story and weaving together, writing this narrative. For this Hebrew baby will be preserved in the same way God provided for Noah and his family in an ark. Actually, the word basket, there in verse 3 of chapter 2, It's the same word used, the only other place it's used, in Genesis 6, 14, when God tells Noah to build a basket or an ark and to cover it with pitch and to go inside of it. Salvation by ark? That's God's signature move as he's telling this story. This is just like the director who brings in his little flair that you know, oh, he directed this. And that little light does that thing in the upper corner. That's M. Night. This is God's signature move. Salvation by ark? That's Yahweh. And this alerts the reader that the waters of judgment shall not overturn God's purposes. He will most certainly preserve his people. Just as Noah and his family were preserved amidst the waters in a basket, so now this Hebrew upon the waters of the Nile is going to be preserved. God's hand of providence, it continues here to uphold, direct, arrange, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest to the least. And this includes little baby boys in baskets upon the Nile. It also includes daughters born to the greatest ruler in all the region. His hand is directing both, from the greatest to the least. And in God's providence, this boy in the basket is found by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. Now take in what you're reading. Her father has given orders to have no mercy upon the Hebrew children, and yet she takes pity upon this boy, and she hatches a plan to nurse him and to nurture him by taking him under her own protection and care. Now, this story is filled with these wonderful examples of God's kind providence and this beautiful examples of irony. I mean, just think about what we're hearing. This mother casts her son upon the waters because of Pharaoh's evil plan. She receives him again and is actually paid by Pharaoh's own household to ensure that he lives. Pharaoh, he has sway over all of Egypt. But God is using members of Pharaoh's own household to accomplish his purposes. Pharaoh's own daughter will be the rescuer and the provider for Moses, which will deliver God's people that are multiplying, out of bondage. Pharaoh, do you see this? Sought to expose Hebrew children to the elements, ensure the end of God's people. But God uses Pharaoh's child to preserve God's people amidst such evil. The irony, the works of providence, 
they're inescapable, and that though this man may make commands, there is one who's greater than man, that his commands shall endure, that his word will not fail. The lesson is clear. Pharaoh, you can make your commands, but God's plans remain unchanged. And that's going to continue to play out in this book. If you wanted a bit of commentary on really, I think, all of Exodus, go read Psalm 33. Particularly Psalm 33, verse 10 and following, where it says, The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The plans of the Lord set in contrast to the plans of the nations. Pharaoh may make his commands, but God's plans remain unchanged. So what we're learning and what we're hearing from the very first pages is that we can have faith in God's word because his purposes will not fail. Nations may reject God's law and legislate evil. Men and women may make their threats and flex their power against God's people, but God ensures that a son is born that will bring his people out of bondage. And this pattern of birth and deliverance, it's a repeated theme throughout Scripture. Think back to what we've already heard in the book of Genesis. Isaac. God promised Abram that he would become a great nation and through him all the nations would be blessed. But at not 40 years old, not 50 not 60, not 80, not 90 years old. At 99 years old, Abram is still without the son of promise. And yet, surprise, he has a son. God's word is proven true, and the line of Abram extends. How about Samson? For many years, his parents were barren, but he is miraculously conceived and becomes this mighty judge of Israel. Now, he is far from perfect, an exemplary judge, but through his death, God's people are delivered. How about Samuel? Do you know the story of Samuel? Childless Hannah is suffering, weeping, praying, asking God for a son, and God provides for her a son, And this son would go on to be the great man of God, the great prophet who would lead God's people. Salvation by birth and deliverance. Each of these sons, they really point to the need for a deliverer in the history of God's people. But if you read them honestly, each one actually falls short of providing the complete and total deliverance that God's people need. Until one day, another son would be born as was promised in Isaiah. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To this same son, another announcement was made through angelic visitors, greeting Joseph as he was told. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Unto us a child has been given. His name is Jesus, and he has come to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and the servitude that it brings. He has come to put an end to all affliction and to judge all evil righteously. And it is through this Jesus, this Son, that the kingdom of righteousness not only is established, but will be maintained and endured for all eternity. Christian, Exodus is our story. Much of the contemporary church especially in evangelical circles, it suffers from a rootlessness that makes it easy to lose our bearings and even our identity as to who we are. And in that sort of world that we live in, there's no better way of finding really our moorings and anchoring ourselves to who we are than reading Exodus as if it was, as Paul says, written for our sake. We ought to view the scriptures, especially the the Exodus in particular, not just as their story, but Christian as our story. This story tells of a God who has a people that he will most certainly deliver, uphold, direct, sustain, and graciously provide for. This story tells us that we are the ones who are brought out of the bondage of slavery and liberated to serve the true and the living God. And friend, if you're not a Christian, this could also be your story. Do you know that? Because your ultimate problem is not your circumstances. It's not your boss. It's not your teacher. It's not your children or your parents. It's not even your declining health. The ultimate problem is that everyone who commits a sin is actually a slave to sin. And it's the sort of servitude that is the most bitter and the most cruel, and it actually ends in death and eternal judgment. It's the sort of servitude that does not end when you take your last breath. God, however, has sent a son. His name is Jesus. He has come to set captives free. He will rule the earth in righteousness. And he will judge sin with equity. We can be sure of that because God has said it and his word does not fail. And he has promised that to anyone who looks to his son and believes and rests upon him can be freed from the bondage of sin and know the liberation that comes in being reconciled to God. We know this is true because God has promised it, because God has given us his word. And so we're called to put our faith in this God who has spoken, this God who's commanded, that we can trust his word because it's stronger than man's and it will not fail. Our lives might be marked by suffering and affliction and evil, But even in this, we are those who can rest confidently in God's word. Do you know William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways? I haven't sung it in 
years, but the opening lines came to mind this week as I was studying, and I had to go look up the rest of the verses, because I had a hunch, I think there's something in that hymn. All I could remember was God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. If you don't know it, let me read to you. Because it goes on to say, He plants His footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings upon your head. Final stanza, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Amen, William. God has spoken. He can be trusted, and his counsel shall not fail. His purposes and plans shall come to pass. And to that, God's people can say, Amen. Father, we thank you that you have given to us clear revelation, that you have given to us the command of your own word, and that in giving us the command of your word, you have given to us sure and precious promises that we know are true, because in Christ they are yes, and we are able to agree and say amen. Thank you for the provision of your son that speaks so loudly, reminding us that you have not forgotten your people, that we are not abandoned in slavery, that we are not neglected in the oppression and bondage that we have brought upon ourselves, but that you are wonderfully gracious. Lord, we pray that we would know more of that rejoicing. We pray that we would know more of that deliverance and that you would give us great clarity, clarity and great boldness and knowing that that is most certainly true and that we can anchor our lives upon it. Father, help us to be those, even as if we walk through seasons of affliction and suffering, that we know your word is true, that you are good, and that your purposes do not fail. Grow us and anchor us in our faith, that you might be glorified, and that you might be seen as the one who rules over all the nations, we pray. Amen.